1: Despite COVID-19 and the Delta variant of the virus spreading throughout the country millions of college students will return to class this fall some will opt for online classes but others will leave home looking for the traditional college experience The number of people going to college has risen since the 1960s Sharon Kelly never expected to be one of them She grew up in New Jersey in the 1970s, thinking college was not
0: for her. I was the youngest of four, and it wasn't what we were brought up to think about. Although my oldest sister, she went to a two-year fashion college. Kelly says she can't remember a time when anyone asked to see her
1: grades or signed her report card. There were no extracurricular activities, no dance class or sports teams. For Kelly, by high school, the future seemed like it was already fixed.
0: There were points where I'm thinking, oh, I'd love to go to college, but I couldn't even get an appointment with the guidance counselor because we weren't that kind of family. We were, you know, the work program family. You know, you learn how to type, get a job as a secretary or bookkeeper or something like that. Like we were sort of slotted in that direction.
1: And after high school, those were the kinds of jobs Kelly landed. She eventually found work at a law firm as a secretary to one of the partners. The law firm was filled with associates just out of law school, around the same age as she was. But Kelly says conversations with them could be awkward. She was a secretary
0: and they were attorneys. I felt sometimes like I was talked down to by some of the associates that were working there.
1: The divide rankled her, but it also ended up being a catalyst. One day after work in 1991, Kelly stopped by a local university and without a plan,
0: without any money... I had no coaching, I had no support behind the scenes. I just walked in and they're like, oh, no, of course you can access. Here you go, just sign here. And it was like as easy as can be. And I was like, wow, you know, that's amazing.
1: Kelly signed up. She borrowed nearly all the money she needed to get her undergraduate degree in psychology. And she didn't stop there. She went on to grad school and then got a doctorate in psychology, which she needed to open her own practice. Right about now, this is sounding like a success story. But to get there, Kelly took out a total of 16 federal student loans. In 2001, by the time she had earned her doctorate in clinical psychology, she owed $119,000 at an interest rate of 6.4%. Kelly struggled to pay all of her student loans back. She was a single mom and had trouble juggling the bills and managing the debts. By 2018, 17 years after finishing, she had already paid off $136,000 in student loans, but Kelly still owed nearly $100,000 for her education. It hit her. There was no way for her to get out from
0: under her student loans. You know, the debtor should pay the debt, but the debt itself should be payable. And, And that was sort of my realization that this is a debt that's never going to be able to be paid. Not certainly not in my lifetime. At at my age and with my circumstances, I really didn't see any other way. Like, I just realized that this is something that is like designed to not be able to be repaid.
1: Kelly is one of more than 43 million people in the U.S. with student debt who collectively owe about $1.6 trillion dollars. Considering the sky-high costs of most college tuition, federal student loans enabled many to fulfill a dream of going to college that would likely otherwise have been inaccessible. But instead of elevating them to the middle class, student debt for many has become an economic burden that's now holding them back. And it's put a strain on the economy. It's a problem a lot of people are trying to fix. From the Wall Street Journal, this is the future of everything. I'm Janet Babin. Today on the podcast, how did we end up here? And how do we get out? A look back on the origins of student loans in the U.S. and imagining a better way to pay for higher education.
2: This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort.
1: through Josh Mitchell.
3: I am an economics reporter at the Wall Street Journal in Washington, D.C.
1: Josh covered student debt at the Journal for nearly a decade and he's just written a book out this month about the federal student loan program and its history called The Debt Trap, How Student Loans Became a National Catastrophe. The idea of the federal government lending students money for college originated after World War II with the G.I. Bill. There was a provision that offered qualified service members $500 a year for college.
2: He wants to continue his education under the GI Bill of Rights.
1: It wasn't until the late 1950s, under President Dwight D. Eisenhower, that other groups became eligible for college aid. Josh says the idea took off shortly after another launch, when Russia sent its Sputnik satellite into space.
0: Today, a new moon is in the sky, a 23-inch metal sphere placed in orbit by a Russian...
1: I was super excited to read in your book that it was scientists who implored lawmakers and even the president at the time to come up with a way to get more American students enrolled in science and
3: engineering. President Eisenhower, who was a small government type of Republican really did not want the government to get involved in higher education. He felt like that was a state issue. But there was this pivotal meeting that he had with scientists less than two weeks after Sputnik launched. These were like top scientists in the United States, um, including CEOs of big companies. And they basically said, uh, you have to act now. You know, If we don't act now, if we don't get more people into science education, we're going to fall behind.
1: In September 1958, President Eisenhower signed an act that created the National Defense Student Loan Program. Initially, grants that didn't need to be paid back were part of the program, but conservative lawmakers were worried about giving the impression of a free ride. The act ended up setting aside $295 million over four years for loans. When President Lyndon Johnson took office, he decided to expand the loan program and, just as also to change its direction. Instead of using education to win the Cold War with Russia, Johnson wanted to use it to overcome racial and income inequality in America.
3: He really felt that colleges could really help level inequality, could raise the living standards of poor people, of Black people. Keep in mind, this was right in the thick of the civil rights movement, and this was intertwined with that.
1: Johnson pushed Congress to pass the Higher Education Act of 1965, which created a second, bigger loan program, the origins of the one we know today. The program essentially made student loans an entitlement. Anyone who met basic eligibility criteria would be entitled to receive one. Among other things, the act gave need-based scholarships, in other words, grants that didn't have to be paid back, to lower-income students, and it expanded the number of available student loans. But LBJ worried over the strain that a new, large-scale student loan program would exert on the federal budget. And Josh says it looked worse than it actually was because of how the books were kept back then.
3: The way the government did accounting, I know everyone's eyes is probably already glazing over, (laughs) but the way Congress did accounting was it was strictly a cash flow basis. Loans were considered spending from the government's perspective.
1: What that means is if the government issued a billion dollars in student loans, that would be recorded as spending from the government's perspective instead of revenue. The budget was already swollen with LBJ's other anti-poverty initiatives at the time, and the Vietnam War was heating up. So Josh says Johnson got creative. He found a way to make the student loan program appear less costly, at least on paper.
3: So he twisted the arms of banks so that they would make loans to students, while the government quote-unquote guaranteed the loans, basically saying, banks, if you make loans to students and the student defaults, we will cover the losses. Now, this looked very cheap because, again, it was the bank originating the loans, and so the government did not really have to put money up front for this.
1: These efforts helped increase college enrollment. According to a congressional report, there were 3.6 million students in college in 1960. A decade later, the number had more than doubled, in part thanks to federal student loans. But the tension between increasing the amount of federal funding available to potential college students and the cost of paying for it, that had already taken shape. And those competing interests still shape the debate to this day. By the early 1970s, inflation had started to rise. The banks decided they weren't making enough money on the student loan program, and they wanted to bail on it. They pressed lawmakers to make the loans more lucrative. Them. So in 1972, Congress created the Student Loan Marketing Association. You might be more familiar with its nickname, Sally May.
3: Congress created this for profit corporation that basically took money from the Treasury Department and gave that money to banks to give to students. And Sally May was owned by banks and schools and had access to government money.
1: Sally May has gone through a number of changes since those early days. But in the beginning, the program worked like this. Banks would lend students money to go to college, and they were guaranteed a rate of interest, often higher than market rates. If the student paid the loan back, the banks kept the money. If the student defaulted, the government, through Sally May would pay the loan back. So for the banks, just as the program had guaranteed cash flow with little risk, the risk still fell on the government.
3: Congress, starting in the late 1970s, gradually whittled away the rights of students to declare bankruptcy on their student loans. And there was this concern that because there's no asset backing a student loan, and by asset I mean a house or a car, Congress was concerned that students would simply walk away from their loans without giving a good faith effort to repay them.
1: Part of the reason that's such a problem is that the amount of money that people take out and then owe in student loans has skyrocketed. Josh says beginning in the 1980s, with more money available to students, colleges started raising their price tags to seem more attractive to higher achieving students. And the easy availability of student loans helped them do it.
3: This really gave schools tremendous pricing power. Schools could set their tuition really high, which they did. And all students had to do and have to do currently is basically tap a computer key, and all of a sudden, they are tens of thousands of dollars, and in some cases, hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt. So they don't even have to blink, and they get into a mountain of debt.
1: For many, like Sharon Kelly, it has been crippling. The amount of money that families have spent on college tuition more than doubled between January 2009 and January 2020, while inflation during that time period went up about 53%. Josh says higher education in the U.S. morphed into a profit-making machine.
3: Banks and Sally Mae made money hand over fist um, on this program. And colleges ended up making a lot of money, too. So in the effort to get more people into college, this is when higher education really kind of became a commodity. And it really started to become a big business, big profit center, big industry. And I think the student loan program was a big reason why.
1: The government has been trying to address this to ensure that students are served. In 2010, the Obama administration streamlined the program in an effort to rein in costs and student defaults. The administration stopped the government's guarantee of the loans through Sally May and private lenders. Instead, they were issued straight from the Treasury Department to the students. Now, Sally May only offers private loans. Up next, the people the federal student loan program has let down and some ideas for how to fix it for the future.
3: This episode is brought to you by Vanta. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging. Vanta's trust management platform helps you quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, and more. Plus, save time by completing security questionnaires with Vanta AI. Learn how by watching Vanta's on-demand demo at vanta.com WSJ. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash WSJ.
1: By some measures, the student loan program has been a success. The share of young adults going on to college has risen in recent decades, in part because student loans enable so many to pay for it. In 2019, about 41% of 18- to 24-year-olds were enrolled in college, up from 26% in 1970. More than half of all undergraduates cover at least some of the cost of college with loans.
3: By and large, for most students, a college degree is a great deal.
1: This is Adam Looney. He's a professor of finance at the University of Utah and a non-resident fellow at the Brookings Institution.
3: It's something that can help you find a better job, earn higher income, be more successful in your career. And so in that regard, Americans that have student loans often have better financial circumstances.
1: But while there are students who pay their loans easily others struggle. Looney says they fall into two basic categories. The first default on their loans, then don't pay them back. They're often from low-income backgrounds and have failed to complete their degree. And they're more likely to have attended a for-profit college that operates to produce profit for shareholders. But the second group of students who struggle to pay back their debt are households in the upper half of the income distribution and those who have a graduate degree like Sharon Kelly. Collectively, they owe about half of that huge $1.6 trillion federal student debt bill. There are a couple reasons for that. Of course, grad school is expensive, but it's also because federal lending rules allow grad students to borrow the entire amount of their tuition fees plus their living expenses for the duration of their program. The Wall Street Journal has been investigating graduate student debt, comparing federal data on loan repayments, balances, and early career earnings for master's degrees around the country. The reporting points to the role that universities have played in contributing to the student loan crisis. Reporters Melissa Korn and Andrea Fuller found that certain programs stood out in the data. Here's Melissa.
4: We found that... Uh, Columbia's film program, graduate film program, which is a master of arts and also an MFA, had literally the worst debt to earnings ratio of any major university graduate program in the country.
1: Melissa says the school uses its Ivy reputation and prime New York City location to help sell the program.
4: They point to successful alums, they point to the access and the connections that they'll make and the hands-on experience and all that, and it's, it's very enticing.
1: While some argue that the federal government lends too much money to students or that borrowers should be more prudent when taking out loans, Melissa says the data show colleges and universities bear some responsibility here.
4: Knowing that graduate students in particular can just take out these federal loans to cover all of their costs for the school, they didn't prioritize financial aid for those students. They really expected the students to turn to and encourage them to turn to federal loans to cover their costs rather than put institutional money toward graduate students, perhaps at the same level they do for undergrads.
1: Melissa discussed the Wall Street Journal's analysis with a number of administrators at Columbia, including some in admissions, deans, the provost's office, even the school's president.
4: And, you know, what they said repeatedly was, yes, we're a wealthy institution. We're not as wealthy, especially on a per-student basis, as some of the other really rich schools that you'd think about. So we can't give money To everybody the same way perhaps they do. President Lee Bollinger also talked about how he prioritizes and says that undergraduates sort of have more of a moral claim to the financial aid dollars because they're really just starting out their educational paths. And
1: it isn't just Columbia. Despite widespread assumptions that an advanced degree from an elite school will boost earnings and career prospects, Melissa found that it wasn't the case for many, at least not immediately.
4: The federal data that we have only shows earnings two years out of school, so we don't really know whether the picture improves when someone's five or ten years out. Yes, many careers, you do earn more as you stay in them longer, but certainly not every career. And uh, some people I've spoken to who study student debt have said, if these graduates aren't paying down the principal on their loans within a couple of years of graduation, they're probably never gonna be making that progress because the interest continues to accrue and they're just gonna be getting deeper and deeper under. But it's not
1: just the students here who are in a bind. While there's more pressure on schools to rein in loans and be mindful of student outcomes, the cost of providing what students consider to be a quality education has also risen. Robert Kelchin is a professor of education at the University of Tennessee. He studies higher education finance.
2: Higher education has a number of challenges. One is that the cost of providing a college education has continued to rise. We're a labor-intensive industry in that students want at least some personal attention and we can't use technology in the same way to cut costs as elsewhere. Higher ed also has issues in that facilities, benefits, all the other costs keep going up. And students also want need things that they didn't want or request decades ago. Things like mental health services or nicer residence halls. That makes college more expensive. But it's been really hard to do anything to bring down the cost of providing an education or the actual price that students and their families pay.
1: The cost of higher education and student debt may be approaching a tipping point, though, that can't be ignored. Some universities are looking for solutions. A few are offering something called income share agreements, where students pledge a percentage of their future earnings in exchange for money to pay for college. These are gaining momentum, says Kelchin, but they only work if higher earners are also part of the pool.
2: The challenge with an income share agreement is people who think they'll make a lot of money aren't going to use it. And people who think they won't make money will sign up for it in droves.
1: Other universities are trying to increase completion rates, meaning the number of students who finish all four years of college, to make sure that borrowing the money at least has a decent payoff. Arizona State University President Michael Crow has called for universities to be held accountable if students fail to graduate.
2: So if you have a debt default rate above a certain percentage, well, then you're responsible in some way financially for that. If you have a debt-to-degree ratio or a debt-to-degree level above a certain level, well, you're responsible for that. People that are taking out huge amounts of debt and no one's graduating, well, you're responsible for that. If you have low graduation rates that are below a certain level, well, you should be responsible for that. So, yes, institutions should be responsible.
1: ASU has been trying to increase completion rates and lower student loan debt upon graduation by offering ready access to tutoring and peer coaching. The university also uses predictive analytics tools that it says can help students choose the right courses so they end up with the credits they need to graduate faster. Experience has shown that if students take the right classes for their degree, they won't waste their time and money on classes that ultimately don't help them graduate on time. Crow is also focused on price.
2: We need the public universities to stop accelerating their costs, and we've worked really hard to do that. We need to make it more affordable.
1: To rein in its own costs, for the past five years, ASU has operated with about half the staff per student as peer organizations. And it's passing at least some of the savings onto students. President Crow has promised resident students to only raise tuition by 3% or less per year. And for the past two years, there has been no tuition increase at all. But some economists say incremental changes at universities won't be enough to meaningfully raise completion rates and lower student debt. Marshall Steinbaum is an assistant professor of economics at the University of Utah. He says if he were in charge, there would be an added layer of higher education, a federal system that would accept more need-based students.
3: Many other countries have a federal higher education system in addition to state systems. I don't think there's any that have it instead of state systems. So this would be like a federal university um, that would act as kind of a flagship for the entire country. We would also have a federal university that would operate a more equitable admissions policy that would uh, educate people to a high standard that would be available uh, in a geographically dispersed way rather than having everything in uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts or whatever. That's the big thing that is definitely not part of the public discussion of higher education and should be.
1: Steinbaum also agrees with calls from some progressive lawmakers to cancel all current student debt and make undergraduate college education free. His reasoning? Steinbaum says that since a four-year degree has become a standard expectation for so many entry-level jobs... Society has a responsibility to pay for it.
3: If you need higher education in order to enter the labor force, then it's like high school. Um, That is, everybody has to have it, has to have a degree, and that has to be provided for free as a public good.
1: That idea is prevalent in Europe and other parts of the world, and there are a handful of institutions in the U.S. that have also made it part of their mission statement.
5: College is never free. The question is, who pays for it?
1: This is Laura Sparks. She's president of the Cooper Union for the Advancement of Science and Art based in New York. The college was founded by industrialist and inventor Peter Cooper in 1859 on the notion that education should be free, at least for students, especially working class students.
5: At Cooper Union, we really aspire to a situation in which students do not bear the financial burden of the cost of their education. The choice to go to college shouldn't be a financial decision, I don't think, but unfortunately today for so many it is. Um, And that's really in our bones, right? It's in our DNA.
1: Now, Cooper Union is a small marquee institution for architecture, art, and engineering. Fewer than a thousand students have typically been enrolled in undergraduate programs there over the past few years, and it's highly selective, only about an 18% acceptance rate for the entering class of fall 2020. For almost 150 years, all students received full scholarships to attend. Most just had to cover living costs in New York. But in 2014, due to budget issues, Cooper Union began charging incoming freshmen partial tuition. The school says every student still gets at least a 50 percent scholarship, and the average undergraduate scholarship covers 78 percent of tuition. Spark says covering those costs means foregoing some flashier options that might make the college look more attractive to potential students.
5: We have chosen high scholarship levels over other things. And the trade-off is that we don't have fancy gyms or rock walls or smoothie bars. We have leading-edge equipment in our labs and studios instead. And we provide a tremendous amount of financial support to our students.
1: Sparks says it's a choice other colleges
5: and universities could make as well. So Cooper Union has put our own resources towards this. And again, we've chosen scholarships over perks. Um, but we also rely on the support of, of others. We rely on private philanthropic support, and we rely on state and federal programs. Currently, Cooper
1: Union tuition costs about $45,000 a year. And again, with every student getting at least a 50% scholarship, that means some could still owe around $22,000 a year out of pocket. Sparks has a financial background. She worked at Goldman Sachs, UBS, and City. From a perspective of someone who knows finance, is there a better way to do this, like an out of the box, like throw away the model and institute this, like, you know, credit default swaps for education?
5: I was looking for that silver bullet as we were creating our plan. And I think everybody would love to have a simple, clear cut answer for this. But ultimately, Spark says there isn't one. Do I think that there are cost efficiencies to be gained? Sure. And I think a lot of institutions that are looking at merger opportunities are looking for a lot of those operational uh, cost efficiencies. I think Um, It's important to think about the constellation of resources that could be put to the federal and state support that is just so critical, Um, because if as a society we are to commit to education as an equalizing force, then as a society we should put resources to it. And I think that includes public sector resources, including federal and state resources. Like other
1: experts, such as Michael Crow at ASU, Spark says increasing grant funding is the best way to help students pay for college in the future. Federal and state money that doesn't have to be paid back. But the purchasing power of these grants, how much bang you get for those federal bucks, has suffered in the half century since they were created as college costs have risen. Right now, there's a proposal in Congress to double the maximum federal Pell Grant a student could receive over a five-year period. But what if, instead of increasing the amount of federal funds available to students, we decreased the amount? Economist Adam Looney says that would force institutions to make some difficult choices. He says expensive graduate programs that leave students with a huge amount of debt or undergraduate degrees that fail to graduate students, they would suffer.
2: Um, Schools would have to respond by reducing tuition or encouraging enrollment in programs that are more successful. And some programs or institutions would have to close. And, you know, that would be okay. Certainly taxpayers would be better off not subsidizing schools that fail their students, but also those students themselves would be better off.
1: Sharon Kelly, the psychologist we met at the beginning of the show, who found herself in nearly $100,000 in debt almost two decades after school, she doesn't think that college has to be free. But she says the debt shouldn't be so high that borrowers are unable to pay it back would you do
0: it again? That's a good question. I mean, I wanted to have a better life. I wanted to change the course of my life from like where I was when I was younger. And I was proud of myself and I had a lot of self-respect that I had um, the ability to make that decision and had the maturity at that point to settle into school with a commitment. And I'm proud of my practice. I ask myself that all the time. I don't know if I could have gone through that knowing what I know now.
1: So far, there are shoots of ideas, but no clear winning solutions to ending the student loan crisis. Meanwhile, each new school year like this one, students collectively rack up another estimated 100 billion in education-related debt. The Future of Everything is a production of the Wall Street Journal. Stephanie Ilgenfritz is the editorial director of The Future of Everything. Lee Camping-Carter is deputy editor of The Future of Everything. This episode's sound designer is Sarah Gibble-Laska. Thanks so much to colleagues Josh Mitchell, Melissa Korn, and Andrea Fuller for their reporting. Kateri Yokum is The Wall Street Journal's executive producer of audio. I'm Janet Babin. Thanks for listening.